Evening all. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, and we'll be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 down to 34. It'd be real helpful if you could have that in front of you um, so that you can see what I'm saying is not my opinion, but it flows from the scriptures. So as we come to, to Luke chapter 12 and the verse 13, we see that Jesus is in this dialogue, this um, time of discipling the disciples, and we see there's a crowd around him. And then we see that there's this man in the crowd who asks a question, and that's where our set of verses land. And the question we have to be asking ourselves as we come to God's word is, why is this here? What's the purpose of verses 13 to 34? Why are they in our Bibles? What are they here to get done in our hearts? And this evening, I want us to see from the text that this passage is here, firstly, to get us to check our heart's desires, and then secondly, to redirect our hearts, where to be resting in the goodness of our heavenly Father who provides for us. So what's the purpose of this text? Firstly, to get us to check our heart's desires. Secondly, to redirect our hearts, to be resting in the goodness of our heavenly Father who provides. To condense that down, the main point of this evening's message is that we would be resting in the good provision of our heavenly Father, that we rest in the good provision of our heavenly Father. So the text is will be split up in the scene, two scenes, and we come to scene one, beginning in verse 13 down to 21, and this is where we will get the checking of our heart's desires. And then the subtitle for this, I want us to see that what comes out of the mouth reveals what is in the heart. What comes out of the mouth reveals what is in the heart. Just to clarify, when we speak about the heart, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the organ that pumps blood around our bodies, but it is like the, the rudder of a ship, it is the, the, the center of who we are, it is our souls. Proverbs says that from the heart flows the spring of life. So our heart is like the rudder of our being. It motivates us, it guides us, it directs us. So, Look down with me in verses 13 to 15 and read along. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In verses 13, we see this question and it has a legitimate concern. He asked Jesus that he would help be a judge in the situation with his inheritance. And the concern is legitimate. It's not sinful within itself. There's nothing wrong with the question. We could speculate. We could think that this is the younger brother and he's maybe being wronged against. And so in Deuteronomy and Numbers, we have these laws that the rabbis could help. Jesus was seen as a rabbi, a teacher of the law, so he could help the, uh, this man receive his inheritance. That's speculation. What we do see, what the main point here is, that what comes out of this man's mouth reveals what he cares about most, and that is his inheritance, the possessions that is being withheld from him. That is what we see here. This man's concern 
is with his inheritance. And we see Jesus' response in verse 14. Jesus is straight to the point. He says, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus didn't come into the world um, to, to deal with earthly debts or to set up our earthly kingdom. As we read on in Luke's um, gospel, we've seen in chapter 15 that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So this is why he pushes this away. This is not his concern. He was here to deal not with earthly debts, but eternal debts as we'll see later on. Then in verse 15, we see Jesus turn from speaking to the man individually and start to speak to the crowd, and he elaborates on his explanation. Jesus puts his finger on the pulse of the problem. Jesus goes for the juggler. He looks past the words of the man's question and into his heart, and he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. So this man's concern was legitimate, but in his heart, his words revealed what was in his heart, and his heart was a desire for the accumulation of possessions. This request reveals where his desires lie. It wasn't that he was coming to Jesus for Jesus, but he was coming to Jesus to receive something else. He was using Jesus as like a genie in a lamp. Help me with these things. Can you give me these wishes? But Jesus looks past the words and into the heart and pushes down on the pulse and says, be on guard against all covetousness. It's probably helpful to define what covetousness is. We talk about do not covet. If you're in a church, you've probably heard the word covet. You see it, it's in the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's um, house or wife. But what does it actually mean? What is the sin of covetousness? What is Jesus pushing down on here? What is he pushing against this man's desires? Um, the Baptist Catechism, to paraphrase, helpfully gives us some categories. It says, covetousness is a discontentment of one's estate or one's own possessions and an envying and longing and desiring of another's possessions. So this discontentment and this longing and desiring for something else, something that you do not have. So to condense that down, to covet is to have a strong desire for more, a hunger and a thirst to accumulate more. It is a discontentment with what you already have. Think about it in this way. Um, I was playing a football match for Irish Baptist College um, in the week, and after five minutes, I was bust dying for a drink. And let's say I ran over, Charlotte was watching, and she hands me this water bottle, and I start drinking, and there's salt water within it. It may satisfy me slightly, but as I keep drinking, I get thirstier and thirstier, because salt water doesn't quench my thirst, but it dehydrates me more. And that is the sin of covetousness. It, it, it is when you desire more, you receive something, but it doesn't quench the satisfaction. It's this hamster wheel of this wanting more and more, so this strong desiring after something which it cannot offer you what you need. And then that's when Jesus um, follows on. So after saying, take care and be, guard, um, be on your guard against all covenant, he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This just has ringing in my ears if you remember the series in Ecclesiastes. It says in Ecclesiastes 5.8, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, 
nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. The one who seeks to has his heart set on worldly possessions, the one who desires more and this accumulated of stuff will never be satisfied. The one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. This man who thinks that he will be satisfied when he gets his inheritance will not. Our seeking after the worldly things will never give us the rest and satisfaction that our hearts desire. It is emptiness, it is vanity, it is foolishness. And I just want to pull back and kind of do a wee bit of a quick service here, like you're servicing your car. Jesus steps back and says to the crowd, not just speaking to the man, but speaking to the ones in front of him. So I say to you, great thick, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. As this service, as you hear these words, is there a check engine light coming on? Would you see yourself in this sense of desiring the world's possessions? Are you drifting into the sin of covetousness? If so, don't ignore the check engine light. Turn from it and turn to Christ who can satisfy us. Then we see Jesus continuing his um, um, teaching and he illustrates the point that he has just said by telling us a parable in verses 16 to 20. Follow along as I read verses 16 to 20. It says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But... God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So what's the point of this parable? This point of this parable is Jesus is seeking to show us uh, one whose life consists in the abundance of his possessions. And he is showing us the folly of it. In verses 16 to 18, we see this man who has a good harvest, who receives a good crop, a crop of such excess that it fills his barns. But he's not satisfied with filling his barns. So he knocks down the barns and makes bigger ones so that he can store the excess crop that he has. Can you see the link between the, the, the being on guard against all covetousness and this man's desire for not being satisfied with what he has, that he knocks down his barns to, to store up more? Um, but this does not satisfy. This is folly. Then in verse 19, we see what comes out of this man's mouth reveals what is in his heart. We see this statement. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and and be merry. This man is a man who lives for the abundance of his possessions. And the words of this man reveals where his confidence lie. It reveals not in the Lord, the Father, who gives us all good gifts. All good gifts come from him, but they rely on his possessions and wealth. So we see a temptation that is enjoined with a time of prosperity. 
That temptation is self-sufficiency. This man has received this good harvest and he has put his trust, his heart's desire has been placed upon it. There's no mention of God. It is all about I. How easy is it to become self-sufficient in seasons of prosperity? But this hope, assurance, and confidence and rest is so unstable. It is like a house of cards that with the slightest breath, it all comes toppling down. And that's what we see in verse 20. God says to him, he blows upon his card of house, and it all comes toppling down. He says, you fool, you put your trust in these things that are mid-air, they're vanity, they're nothing. They cannot save him. Your soul is required of you this night, and who will have your processions? He cannot take them. There's no eternal consequence of having an accumulation of possessions. Then we read in verses 21, it says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We see two types of treasures in this world. The first treasure that we see is a treasure that makes you purr towards God's. And the second treasure is one that makes us rich towards God. So we've already seen the first treasure, the counterfeit treasure that the world offers in the forms of wealth and possessions. It also offers um, wider than what this parable is talking about. It offers us this counterfeit treasure in sexual freedom and satisfaction. It offers us in this party life experience, the living for the weekend, the highs, the buzzes, the wobblers of a weekend. But they all have their comedowns. They all have their money, Monday mornings where you hear this statement, there must be more to life than this. These things, these worldly things, cannot offer you the rest and satisfaction that we are all searching for, that eternal satisfaction and quenching of our thirsty souls to be right with God. And then that's when we compare this counterfeit treasure with the true treasure, the treasure that God the Father provided for us. And it's not a possession, but it is a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who in First Peter we are told that through him we have obtained an inheritance that is imperishable, undeviled, and unfading. And the greatest thing about it is that it is free to those who will receive it. This true treasure, Christ Jesus says, come to me of no charge and I will not cast you out. Christ Jesus is the one who makes us rich towards God by giving us his riches, his righteousness, and then he takes our debts, our sins upon himself and satisfies them on the cross on our behalf. He is the one who can give us rest and satisfaction for our searching souls. And the greatest thing is that he is willing to do this for you and he is able to do this. So closing scene one, maybe this evening you're thinking that you've checked your heart and you find that you've been chasing after the counterfeit treasure of this world and you've been left wanting. You've been drinking the salty water and your soul is unsatisfied and your soul is still weary. Let me tell you of the glorious hope of Christ Jesus 
that he offers you pure spiritual water. He is the living water that can quench your thirsty soul. He is the one who can give you eternal rest for your soul. He can take the burden off your back and put his righteous robes around you. And he calls you to come to him to be made rich towards God through him alone. Secondly, we come to scene two then where we see in verses 22 to 34, we see three ways that will help redirect our hearts, will help to redirect our hearts. So in verse 22, we see this then even a narrowing in of who he's speaking to. He goes from speaking to the man, to the crowds, then to the disciples. And Jesus makes clear to the disciples that covetousness this desire for more worldly possessions, this desire to accumulate worldly things brings about a worldly anxiousness, a dissatisfaction with what the Father has already given you. When you take your eyes off Christ, you start to wobble. Um, but I just want to make a helpful clarification. When it says in verses 22, do not be anxious, we have to define what type of anxiousness he is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about the mental health anxiety and anxiousness that we face in a fallen world, but he is talking about an anxiousness that comes from a lack of faith in trusting in God's good provision. And we can say this with surety because Jesus wouldn't seek to burden the weary or seek to make those who feel worse with anxiety Um, because he is the one who comes to give rest. In Matthew um, 12 and 20, it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So just have in mind, when I'm speaking about the anxious, I'm not speaking about the one who struggles with mental health, but we're speaking about the one who has a lack of faith and who is desiring after worldly possessions instead of trusting in their heavenly Father. So, If you will read with me uh, verses 24 and 28, it says, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small as thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest. Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? In these verses, we see the first way that Jesus seeks to, to redirect our hearts. And it is the it is for us to consider the Father's goodness towards nature. So the first way that God seeks to redirect our hearts to resting in his goodness and his provision is to consider the Father's goodness towards nature. In verse 24, we are to be astounded at the Father's condescension, his being made low to provide for the ravens and the birds. 
We are to wonder at these animals that we pay so little of attention to that God cares for them and provides for him. And then he compares how much more value are we because we are made in his image. And this is meant to fill us with joy that if the Father cares for the little birds, how much more will he care for you who is made in his image? I think the Puritans got this. The Puritans... um, have this helpful way of looking at life and always pushing it back to God's goodness towards them. Um, They talked about the book of nature. They used nature, they used things in life to remind them of God's goodness. Um, A wee way that I like to think about it is when I wake up, I'm always thirsty and I love a cup of tea, and a helpful way when I drink my tea and it quenches my thirst, it always points me back to Christ, the living water, who has satisfied my heart. And it's silly, but helpful. Or even just think about the birds. When you're out a walk and you see the birds flying, this verse should come to your mind, and it should make you rejoice that if the Father cares for the birds, how much more will he care for you? We must use the book of nature and see God's goodness in nature to encourage us to remember that we have a heavenly Father who cares for us. Then in verses 25 and 26, we get this challenge. It talks about if you can't add a single second to your lifespan, why do we think we are in control of anything else? The reason he talks about it's so personal, it's your own life, but you can't even add a second to it or take away a second to it. And so Jesus is challenging us here to live by faith. It makes us submit to God's sovereignty. It makes us rely on the truths that we believe. If we believe that God is in absolute control and that he has said in his word that all things work together for our good, we have to grasp hold of those promises, of those truths, and apply them to our hearts, which is hard but we have to trust in his providential care. We have to. I love Spurgeon has this wee devotional book. It's the, the checkbook of life, and it's basically taking the promises of God and turning them into prayers. It's like, Lord, you've said this. Now let me believe it's true. Work it in my heart that I can believe it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's getting us to realize that if we cannot add a second to our life, we are completely dependent upon him. And there's no one else, if we think about it, you'd rather be dependent upon because he is a good and holy and just God. So verses 26 and 25 give us a challenge to live by faith, to submit to God's sovereignty in all spheres of life. Then in verses 27 and 28, it reads, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. This is the second consideration. We are meant to look at the lilies and see how they are clothed. But before we get the comfort, let me say what this verse is not saying. Just because it says they do not toil or work, that does not mean that we are not to toil and work. Scripture interprets Scripture, and Proverbs 6, 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider his ways and be wise. We are called in God's word to work wholeheartedly to the Lord and to work diligently. 
And it also says in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we cannot take this verse as just to, to sit back and God will provide for us. We are called to work in light that our heavenly Father delights to provide for us. It is meant to liberate us from this anxious working. It is meant to spur us on, knowing that he is the one who provides. And so, we're also to see here that what man provides for himself appeals to what God provides for us. We see this comparison between Solomon, who was, he was the dawn, he was the richest man, that he was the one, he had all the money, all the wealth, but his beauty peels in comparison to the provision that the lilies receive from God. Calvin puts it, puts it beautifully. He says, the blessings of God which glows upon the plants and flowers excel all that man may achieve by their wealth or influence or by any other means. That's glorious. <laughs> That's glorious that the Father provides. Well, anything, we could seek to provide for us, and it just peels. So why not this rest in the goodness and the provision of your heavenly Father for his gifts are far superior than anything the world can give to us. Then in verse 28, we get this rattling, this kind of, again, Jesus putting his finger on the, the pulse of the problem. He says, Oh, you of little faith, the root cause of our worldly anxiousness is that we lack faith in faith that God will provide for us. Again, I just want to guard against someone who's sitting here and who is a, a saint who, who believes in Christ, but they look inward and they, they're thinking to themselves, I have little faith. I'm weary of in my heart. I'm, I'm believing in Christ, but my faith is the size of a mustard seed. It is tiny. What Jesus is not saying is he's not speaking to you and saying, oh, you have little faith and condemning you. He would say to you, it does not matter the size of your faith, but the object of your faith. If you have the faith of a mustard seed and it is placed in Christ, well, he is a mighty savior and it doesn't matter about how much faith you have because he is able and willing and he has you in his hands and you cannot be snatched out. So don't be crushed by this saying when it says, oh, you have little faith. This is aimed at the person here who cannot depend upon God when troubles come, when they see the bills, they start to seek to work it out themselves instead of turning to God. He is saying, have faith in me. If I have provided Christ, my son for you, I will also provide what you need. And it says later on, we see that he delights. It's his good pleasure to provide for his children. Then in verses 29, down to 31, we see our second way that Jesus gives us to help redirect our hearts. And it is to seek the Father's kingdom first. To seek the Father's kingdom first. Read with me from verses 29 down to 31. And it says, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. One commentator 
puts it this way. It's a matter, when he's summing up these verses, he says it's a matter of the selecting the right item to be placed first on our list of priorities. This whole idea of seeking first the kingdom of God does not mean that we don't diligently work and plan out, but it's the order, the priority. Our North Star is God the Father. We look to him, and as we look to him, and we are reminded of his goodness and his provision, all the other worries melt away, and he knows what we need, and he provides for us. Maybe an illustration is I have terrible balance, and so as I, I walk with my friend Stuart up in the morns, and there's like a wee like stone wall, and there's like water flowing over it, and it's literally one stop, one step, and you're over. But in my head, as I look at the wall, my knees just get weak. I'm terrible. I just can't. I think, well, I may as well just fall in. I may as well give up now. And Stuart says to me, "Don't look at the wall, but look past it. Look to something stable, and one step, and you're over." And that's what this seeking first the kingdom is about, is telling us not to focus on the world's cares, but to look past them to our heavenly Father who knows what we need and delights to provide for us. I just love those words when he says, your Father knows what you need. Our heart's desires should be set on seeking the kingdom of God, knowing that our heavenly Father knows what we need and will provide for us. And then lastly, we come in verses 32 to 34, and we see our third way that Jesus gives us to help redirect our hearts, and that is to rest in the Father's goodness towards you. Read with me in verses 32 to 34. It says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that you do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The helpful way to kind of illustrate when Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, is I don't know if you've seen a video on on Facebook, but there must be like a nursery graduation, and there's his son, and the camera's focused on his face, and you can see that he's sad, and he's kind of searching in the crowd. You can see he's kind of getting a wee bit upset. And then, like, like that, his face is a big smile, and he's beaming, and the camera pans over, and you see his father sitting there. And it's just a beautiful imagery of what it does to your heart and your joy to know that your heavenly father cares for you. This young man, this young child, seen his father and knew that he cared for him, and it was almost like a, a moment of security that he could do it. And that's what I just love about verse 34. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Brother, sister, hear that. It is the Father's good pleasure to provide for us. Let that warm your heart. Let that melt away the worries of this world and rest in him. So, Let's remind ourselves that we are loved with a steadfast love. 
And then also, let's remind ourselves that we are loved with a Trinitarian love. The Father chooses us in the Son. The Son willfully comes and accomplishes salvation. And he rises again, and the Father, Son, send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit makes us alive in the Son and then dwells within us. Thomas Goodwin, this Puritan, has a, a glorious way to remind us of this Trinitarian love that the believer received. He says, we sit, as it were, in the midst of them while they all manifest their love unto us. How do we steady our weary hearts? refocus ourselves and the Trinitarian love that we receive, look afresh to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then in verses 33 to 44, it reads, um, and we see again this, um, this, this comparison between these two treasures, this idea of sell your possessions and give to the needy and seek this inheritance that doesn't fade away, is that we are to seek our heart's rest, not in the things of the world, but in the, the true inheritance, the inheritance that we receive through faith alone in Christ Jesus. This counterfeit um, treasure that the world over offers us, this brings restlessness and discontentment and ultimately damnation but this true treasure, Christ Jesus, brings rest and satisfaction and eternal life for those who are resting in him alone. And then verse 34, is a, this is a helpful closing verse. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This evening, where is your heart? Is it chasing after the world? Or is it resting in the person of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are, that you are a God that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, we thank you that through your Son, through you, O oh Lord Jesus, that we can come to know you, Father. And we thank you that you sent your Spirit to dwell within us. I pray that, O oh Father, by the Holy Spirit, that we would know afresh this evening your love for us. Help us to see the love that you give us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much, Patty, for helping us to work through that together, challenge us in that way. We're going to respond by singing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which is a hymn calling us to lay our all down in light of the way Christ laid down his life for us. So as the musicians begin, let's stand together and respond with this hymn.
may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace.